We've been looking at the role of the gospel. And we come to a very important aspect of that today. In fact, today is a two-part lesson. One today, one next week uh, to conclude this section of, of the gospel. We've been looking at how you respond to the gospel. Mark 1.15, Jesus came preaching the good news. And the good news is the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus is God incarnate. He's going to come. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. He's going to be raised the third day. Then he's going to establish his kingdom and we have to decide, when we hear that news, what will be our response? What are we going to do in, in, in understanding what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, our Lord? And, and so when you turn over to passages like Acts 2, when Peter preaches the first gospel sermon on Pentecost, the response of the people who heard him was, brothers, what shall we do? I mean, you have to make a response. Now, one of the things you need to understand is this is a positive response in that these people wanted to know how do we get back right with God. And we know that there are 3,000 that make that decision. But what we also need to realize is that there were thousands and thousands of others that walked away that day. Not everybody obeyed the gospel. If there were maybe 10, 20, 30,000 listening, only 3,000 responded positively. But here's what's fascinating about the gospel. The gospel as it is preached is like seed being planted. And that seed sometimes takes time. Acts 6, you have the church still growing rapidly, the text says. And notice that last phrase, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith find that passage fascinating. You see, when the first gospel sermon was preached, it was Pentecost, one of the three great festivals of Israel. The priests are all up in the temple. They're up there. Peter and the apostles are down somewhere outside the temple grounds. They're preaching the gospel for the first time. The priests are, no doubt, upstairs in the temple courts going, what in the world's going on? And when they hear about what the apostles had preached and how that they had preached that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Here's what's fascinating about these priests. Many of them were Sadducees. Sadducees denied the resurrection of the dead. And so when they heard that Jesus had been raised from the dead, these priests would have thought, no, there is no resurrection of the dead. And yet we see sometime later that seed being planted. And notice again the phrase back there, and let me go back. They became obedient to the faith. When I saw that, I was reminded, Blake, of the old hymn, Trust and Obey, where you have that beautiful chorus, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And if you look back again at the text, that's exactly what these priests did. They became obedient to the faith. They trusted and they obeyed. Well, today we continue looking at how do we respond. And, and two or three weeks ago, we began by looking at the fact that you have to respond with either repentance or faith. And, and one of the things I tried to set up is that sometimes in the Bible, repentance comes first. Sometimes faith comes first. We, we don't need to be dogmatic about that at all. That has to do with where you are in your spiritual journey, okay? And so sometimes the text talks about repenting and believing. Sometimes believing and repenting. But it always begins with this foundation of faith. And faith in what God has done through Jesus Christ. What he has done for us that we could not do. Hopefully will lead to us saying, I need to make a change in my mind. I need to make a change in my life. I need to become a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. And last week I talked about loyal declaration. We, we, I grew up hearing it called confession. And, and I still will use that term, I'm sure, a lot. 
But the more I've studied what confession is, it is far more than simply acknowledging that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Confession is meant to be a declaration of loyalty, a pledge of allegiance to Jesus Christ. And so when we make that confession, we are saying we believe that Jesus is in fact Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and we submit our lives to his authority. That's what that is. And of course, when you're 11 years old like I was, it, that wasn't really what was going through my mind. But I'm glad that the Spirit continues to reveal you know, what God is doing in my life just like he is in your life. Today we come to an issue that has sadly divided Christianity for literally hundreds of years. And, and I'm going to introduce it once again with a word to try and make some corrective action. And that is the subject of immersion. Now, you probably grow up, grew up hearing it called baptism. I did too. But, but I'm one very much like Alexander Campbell. Alexander Campbell, some 175 years ago, said if we would just go ahead and translate that word, it would clear up so much confusion. And the word literally means immersion. And so I'm going to use the word immersion today. Now, in order to do that, let me remind you just simply how most translations translate this word. Here is, for instance, Matthew 3, 1, talking about John. And, and notice the language there. In those days, John the Baptist. That's not, by the way, his last name. Okay? He's John the Baptist. He came preaching. And, of course, he's immersing people there in the Jordan River. I want you to notice how one translation translates this verse. This is from the TLV, the Tree of Life version. And it translates it, in those days, John the Immerser came. Now, I'm going to be quoting most of this sermon, not all of it, but most of it out of the TLV. Why? Because what's fascinating to me, if you've got Bible Gateway on your phone or on your uh, iPad or, or, or laptop, Bible Gateway lists all the major English translations of the Bible. I mean, nearly all of them in there. And what's fascinating is you can pull up a verse like this and you can pull up how it's translated in every one of these versions. Now, here's what's interesting to me. And you can just process it in your own mind. In all the translations done by either Catholic or Protestants, they will always translate it as baptism or Baptist or baptize. But there are two translations that come from Jewish backgrounds. This was the tree of life. It comes from Messianic Jews. Jews who have come to the conclusion that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. Uh, many of them, in fact all of them on this translation committee are PhDs. They're brilliant people. But they're brilliant more in that they understand the nature of the first century world. And they will all translate, or, or this translation will, every time you come across this word, translate it as either immerse or immersion or immerser. The same is true of, of a translation called the Complete Jewish Bible. And once again, what distinguishes them from all other English translations is they don't get caught up in the debate about baptism. They don't care about how Protestants have argued over this for the last 400 years. They just want to translate the text correctly. And they do it. And for that, I'm grateful. And so I'm going to be using that. Notice some of the passages you're very familiar with in this translation. Matthew 3.13, the baptism of Jesus. 
than Yeshua. They will use Jesus' Jewish name, his, his Hebrew name, Yeshua. Old Testament, Joshua. Yahweh saves. We call him Jesus. They called him Yeshua. Then Yeshua came from Galilee to John. Notice, to be immersed by him. Now, if you've ever watched these documentaries or these movies about Jesus, a lot of the times when he goes into the Jordan River, he's not immersed. And yet, if you know the original language, you know that's exactly what happened. And so they translate it correctly. They came to John and said, Rabbi, the one who is with you beyond the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's immersing. Four years ago, when I first came here, I preached through the Gospel of John. And one of the things that I did in that series was to explain that Jesus had, as I called it then, a baptismal ministry. Now, that shocks most people. Most people don't realize that. In other words, when Jesus is out here preaching, he's not just preaching the, the good news of the kingdom. He is calling people to be immersed. John tells the rest of the story. Matthew and Mark never even mention it. Luke never mentions it, except when they get to the Great Commission. But John lets us know that the whole time Jesus is teaching, his disciples are being baptized. Notice the next verse. This comes from chapter 4, verse 1 of John. Now, Yeshua knew that the Pharisees heard that he was making and immersing more disciples than John. I want you to think about that for a moment. You mean Jesus... Is, is, is involved in more baptisms than John is? Yes. But then he adds this caveat. Although Yeshua himself was not immersing, his disciples were. In other words, it was Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew. These guys were taking people who were coming to Jesus, and based on their repentance, they're baptizing them by the hundreds, by the thousands. Most of us don't realize that. Now, you may be thinking, why didn't Jesus baptize people? For a very simple reason. Let me just ask a question. Just out of curiosity, how many people in here were either baptized or married by our North? Would you raise your hand? All right, I want you all to look around at how many people have a guaranteed ticket to heaven. Okay? Guaranteed ticket. When I came to Nashville 32 years ago, let me tell you, I mean, Brother North was still an incredible influence in the Madison community. I'd become the preacher at uh, Northside, and a brother came up to me, and he said, Hey, Les, uh, listen, I want to buy you a sports jacket. I never had anybody to offer me a sports jacket. He said, Do you mind? I said, No. Would you tell me your size? No. But anyway, that's beside the point. Now, I told him my size. Two weeks later, he comes with a sports jacket. Anybody want to guess what color it was? This brother wanted me to be the next Iron North. I'm like, I am not Iron North. Nobody can be Iron North. There's only one Iron North. They broke the mold after Iron North was born, right? I mean, he was an incredible individual, wonderful evangelist, great servant of God. Jesus was, I mean, imagine millions of times greater than Iron North. Jesus didn't want people saying, Jesus baptized me. That makes me special. I was baptized by Jesus himself. Jesus never took that step. And yet his disciples baptized during the entire time he was preaching. Matthew 28, 19 in the TLV. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How? Immersing them. 
That's what the text means. Immersing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Ruach HaKodesh. Ruach HaKodesh is the way Jews would say the Holy Spirit. You'll see it again here in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Mark 16, 16. He who believes and immersed. I mean, do you see how if we translated the word properly, so much of the confusion around this subject would simply evaporate? Now, does it raise questions? Of course it raises questions. And you have to address those. I'll try to do some of that next week. But notice the meaning of the word. Acts 2.38, repent and let each of you be immersed in the name of Messiah Yeshua. I love that translation. I mean, we have it, Jesus Christ, but Christ means Messiah. He's the one who was expected. And notice, for the removal of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. The Greek word is baptisma and baptizo. Baptisma is the noun, baptizo is the verb. Now, I want you to notice what we've done in, in English. What we've done in English is simply to take the word and watch the translation of it. We take the A of baptisma, a Greek word, and you have baptism. You take the O and change it to an E, and we have, instead of baptizo, we have baptize. That's how we have transliterated the word. Now, why? And the answer is simple. The word was a, became a religious word. You know how words become religious sometimes. The word bishop, for instance. Uh, Doug read from, from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. If anybody wants to be a, you get the old King James, the word is bishop. But the Greek word is overseer as the translation Doug read from. And, and, and the word bishop had become a religious word and needed to be in the text, and so we got it in the text. But it is really an overseer. It's like a superintendent at a building site. It's not a religious word at all. Well, the word baptizo or, or baptisma, it was an ordinary word in the first century. It became a religious word, a religious word that people began to change the meaning of over time. And as the meaning of the word changed, to translate it correctly would cause a huge disturbance. And so even to this day, except for our Jewish friends, we don't translate the word. We transliterate it. And, and so that's why I like the TLV. And again, you go back to the original language and it simply means to immerse or immersion. Notice here, this is a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament by Walter Bauer. It's now in edition three. It is the standard Greek-English New Testament dictionary, okay? It's what everybody gets. You take Greek class, you buy one of these books. And notice the word up there, baptizo. Two meanings, dip, immerse. That's simple. Watch this. This is from the theological... This is what's called the, Gal the Cadillac of, of, of Greek studies. Back... Again, 40 years ago, when I'm taking Greek at Freed Hardeman, my Greek professor, go buy one of these books, you know, this, this set of word studies. And, of course, there's like this many volumes. And, and so, you know, I saved and saved and saved and was finally able to buy a set of them. And if you just open it up, I want you to notice a fascinating aspect. You see, in Greek, you have another word that is kin to baptizo, and it's simply bapto. And you find that some in the New Testament. When, when you wash dishes, you baptize, you immerse them, you dip them under the water. Okay? But the Greeks had a way of what they called intensifying words. And so if you wanted to intensify a word, you change the ending from O to idzo. Okay? That's an intensification of the word. 
That's why here in Kittle it says the intensive baptizo. In other words, it's been intensified from bapto. Bapto means to dip into. Baptizo means to plunge into. Now, it was most often used in negative terms. You know, my cousin Buddy went down to the pond, and guess what? He got baptized, which means he drowned. I mean, that's the word they use for drowning. Oh, yeah, yeah, did you hear about the Titanic? Titanic was coming across the North Atlantic. It got baptized. In other words, it sank. That was the word used to talk about ships that sank was baptisma or baptizo. In other words, it completely went under the water. Notice another, a couple of Jewish quotes. I want you, again, I want you to understand why these Jewish translations translate it correctly. This is from, and by the way, Jesus' command to be immersed was not some random act of obedience. Uh, Jesus didn't simply say, I think I want people to be immersed in water as a symbol that they've accepted me. No, there's far more to it. And, and so I want to go down this path just for a little bit, and then I'll explain the meaning of the word. Water and immersion was a theme that developed throughout the Old Testament that if you'd been a first century Jew and you'd heard Peter say, you need to repent and be immersed, you wouldn't have stopped for a second and say, do I have to? It wouldn't have entered your mind. Simply because of your background with the Old Testament. Let me illustrate four things from the Old Testament. Number one, Genesis 1 and creation. And, and you can talk to Stan, he can tell you all about this, I'm sure. But when you turn over to Genesis 1 and creation, verse 2, a passage that we oftentimes miss. Okay, we just kind of go over it to get to the first day of creation. But notice... After creating the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless, empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. In other words, Genesis begins with this mass of water, sometimes called the primordial deep. And notice in this mass of water what the text says. And the Spirit of God, the Ruach of Elohim, this, this Spirit of God is hovering. That word hovering is like a, a hen that broods over its eggs before they hatch into chicks, okay? And so some translations will even say brooding. Uh, NIV goes with hovering over the waters. What was the Holy Spirit trying to tell us? Holy Spirit was trying to tell us fix, something's fixing to happen. Just like a hen brooding over eggs, all at once, you know, things start happening and little chicks start coming out. Creation is fixing to occur. Now here's what's fascinating. You turn over to John's gospel. And John recreates Genesis. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Genesis, in the beginning, God created. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. And guess what? The Word created. You continue to go through and you see over and over again, there was light in the beginning and Jesus was light and he was the light of the world. You get all of these similarities. And when you get over to John chapter 3, you pick up with Genesis 1 verse 2. Notice what Jesus said. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Well, guess what? If you want to be a member of the kingdom of God, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. In other words, that same water and spirit that brought first creation into existence has to be involved to bring new creation in existence. That's not an accident. And anybody reading John would have immediately gone back to Genesis 1 verse 2 and picked that up. Second one's the flood narrative. Genesis 8 and the flood. 
And you, you remember, Genesis 1 and 2, God creates. Genesis 3, sin enters the world. 3 all the way to 6, sin explodes in the world until God says, no more. And then God sees Noah and tells Noah, I want you to build an ark. And he builds the ark. You know the story. And, and the flood comes. And what does the flood do? The flood returns creation to non-creation. That's one of the things we don't realize. You see, with the coming of the flood, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And the Spirit of God now begins new creation all over again, having cleansed the world of sin. Watch how the text works. God kept Noah in mind along with all the wildlife and livestock that were with him in the ark. Now, I'm coming this time from the ISV, International Standard Version here. And there's a reason for that. You see, in Hebrew, the word for spirit is ruach. You've already heard it a while ago. The word for wind is ruach. Okay? Same word. The word for breath is ruach. So God breathed into the nostrils of Adam. Ruach, the spirit of God, then causes him to come alive. Okay? You need to understand the meaning of that word. Watch how this translation translates. Here's, here's the ark. Everything's been covered in water. It's time for new creation to come into existence. God's spirit moved throughout the earth. Now, every other English translation translates it wind. God sent a wind. He sent a ruach. Now, Stan, I haven't talked to you about this, but my view is, is that this is not a wind from God. This is the spirit of God bringing new creation. And, and, and I know a lot's been written about that. And so notice, God's spirit moved throughout the earth, causing the floodwaters to subside and life began to break out again. Watch what Peter does with it. Peter over in his third, uh, first epistle, third chapter. In that ark, a few, that is eight souls, were brought safely through the water. In other words, the ark served as this means by which the people passed from a wicked world to a new world where evil had been, you know, purified. Of course, it had not been purified in, in, in Noah and his wife and his three sons. Wickedness is still going to continue, but the world, being as wicked as it was, had been cleansed. Look at what Peter says. Corresponding to that, immersion, immersion now brings you to safety. In other words, it takes us from sinfulness into new creation. Immersion does that. And so Peter, and no doubt he had preached this so many times that in the story of the flood, you see an image of Christian immersion. Thirdly, Exodus 14 in the crossing of the Red Sea. There's no story in the Old Testament more fundamental to understanding the New Testament than the Exodus from Egypt. Where the Israelites who had been in slavery crossed the Red Sea then go into the land of freedom. God gives them his law and they become his people. I mean the very image of what Jesus did for us when he came. And so this crossing of the Red Sea becomes this image. And what happened is New Testament writers see this and they think instantly that's baptism. What the Israelites did were they were baptized. Now you say, no wait a minute. They're not under the water. Well, according to Paul, they are. Look at Paul's definition. I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud. God's presence was indicated by a cloud. Of course, we all know water's in a cloud. And so here's this image of God's presence as a cloud, 
It's over the top of them. And notice, and they all passed through the sea. And so Paul said this, they all were immersed. Very same Greek word. They were all immersed into Moses. How? In the cloud and in the sea. And of course his point is, we have been immersed into Jesus Christ through the waters of immersion. And so same image that pops up. And by the way, this image of, of the exodus, it's not just in baptism. You, you turn over to John chapter 1 and you get a lot of this same imagery of Israel coming out of slavery. Well, Christians are, are mankind's going to be brought out of slavery to sin. John 1, 29. John sees Jesus and says, look, the Lamb of God. What Lamb? Not the sacrificial lamb over at the temple when you sin. It's not talking about ordinary sin. You go to the temple, you sacrifice a lamb or a goat or a pigeon. No, he's talking about the Passover lamb. The lamb of the Exodus. And so you turn over to Paul in 1 Corinthians. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Which gives us the privilege through baptism, through immersion, to Exodus sin and go into freedom. Which is why... We take the supper. You remember what night Jesus instituted the supper? Not a Passover. He said, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. And then took bread and took fruit of the vine and says, guess what? I'm the new sacrifice. And I'm instituting the new covenant. And there is a new rescue plan. And by the way, there's no... No mistaking that Jesus died the next day at about 3 in the afternoon as the Passover lambs up at the temple are being slaughtered. He is slaughtered outside the city as these lambs are being slaughtered inside the city. Don't miss that. And then finally the last one is Leviticus 15, 16 in the purification baths. Again, something that because we're not Jews we don't get. Okay? But you go back to the Old Testament and you've got all of these rules about, okay, you become clean, here's how you, uh, or you become unclean, here's how you become clean. We're, we're not unclean, clean people. I mean, I mean, yes, we are, but not in the way they were. You know, I'll go outside and work for a few minutes and then come in and get ready to go to the building. And June says, you are going to take a shower, right? In other words, you are going to clean up. Well, yes, of course I'm going to clean up. Theirs was more spiritual in nature. So you have, for instance, Leviticus 16 to the priest. He shall bathe himself with water in the sanctuary area before he goes and sacrifices to God. You've got to go and cleanse yourself with water. Watch all the different statements about this by Jewish people. This is from Torah.com. Torah.com is a Jewish website. It just kind of explains Judaism down through the ages. Look at what it says. For over two millennia, 2,000 years. Jews have been practicing tevilah. Notice why. Immersion of the entire body in water for the purpose of removing ritual impurity. Jews are immersed all the time and have been for over 2,000 years. Look at this website. This is from oneforisrael.org. Later, when the temple had been built, look at the language. It was necessary for everyone to be immersed in a mikveh to become ritually clean before entering the temple. I was talking to Stan earlier. He said they misspelled that word. It should be mikvah. And so I, I asked him point blank. I said, is mikveh and mikvah the same thing? He said, no, it should be mikvah. Mikveh means hope. Mikvah means, means a baptismal pool, a pool this, this place where you go to be immersed. 
And by the way, you had to be immersed every time you were intimate with your spouse. Every time a woman went through her monthly cycle. Every time you touched something dead. Every time you touched a Gentile. I mean, you became unclean in a myriad of ways which demanded for you to have a complete immersion in water to make yourself pure. People oftentimes ask, where did everybody on the day of Pentecost get baptized? Boy, that's a no-brainer. I mean, if you had gone back in the ancient world, by the way, this is the south entrance of the temple. Uh, Forty years ago, this wouldn't have been here. It had been a field, a green field. But they dug it out. These are the very steps that Jesus would have walked up to go in. And you see where they closed off the three entranceways that originally went up to the temple. That's where Jesus would have gone up to the temple on the south side of the temple. Now here's what's fascinating about that, whether it's the south side or the north side. On the south side, and here's a picture of it, uh, the temple is at the very top up there. You can see kind of the entranceways. Down here to the very bottom, and this is the model of it, that's the Pool of Siloam. If y'all remember in John, Jesus puts mud on a guy's eyes and says, go down to the Pool of Siloam. Now what was the Pool of Siloam? It was a, a huge immersion place, baptismal place. It's where the Jews would line up before going into the temple to immerse themselves, one right after the other, hundreds, thousands of them at a time. You go to the north side of the temple, you have the Pool of Bethesda. Same thing. If you're coming in from the north, what do you do before you go into the temple? You immerse yourself. And if you didn't want to wait there in line, you could go to the south side and you had all of these little individual mikvahs. And, and, and these mikvah were literally all over the place. I, I saw these with water still in them four years ago. Right, just a few. There's the steps up to the temple. Over here's the mikvah. Over there's a mikvah. Over there's a mikvah. In fact, over a hundred mikvah have been un, uncovered in Jerusalem. And that's just a fraction of what was available in the first century. Why? Because as a Jew, you got immersed all the time. If you went to the temple, you got immersed. Now, what does that say about baptism? About immersion as Christians? What it says is this. You turn over to Hebrews. And Hebrews makes a point about sacrifices. As a Jew, guess what? You sacrifice all the time. You're all the time bringing an animal, a lamb, a goat, a, a bull, uh, pigeons, doves. Sacrificing them to God. You did it all the time. But when Jesus came. He entered the most holy place once for all. Have you noticed none of us have had to bring goats to church? No lambs have been sacrificed out front. We don't have to bring pigeons and pull their heads off and take the blood and empty it out. You see, Jesus offered himself once and for all, ending the entire sacrificial system. And so guess what he asked of us? You be washed as well. Once and for all. You see, we don't have to go through the waters of baptism every few days to cleanse ourselves of our sins again. No, when we go and obey the gospel, notice the language here, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Sprinkled with what? With the blood of Jesus. Once and for all. And our bodies washed with pure water when we're immersed into Christ. You see, if you'd lived in the first century, you wouldn't have asked the question, do I have to? You would have simply made the remark, you mean this is the only time I have to? And they would have said, yes, 
Be immersed in the name of Jesus. And you'll be a part of the family of God. And it's true today like it was 2,000 years ago. If you need to do that, why don't you do that right now as we stand and sing.